0: Thanks for joining me today on the Nature Photography Podcast. This is your host, Terry Vanderheiden. I'll warn you up front, this podcast will be quite a bit longer than a typical episode as we're doing an interview format today. So settle in and listen to a fun conversation with nature photographer, David Bozik. Joining me today live in my little sound studio is wildlife and nature photographer, David Bozick. You can find his work over at Facebook under his name Bozick Imagery. His last name is spelled B-O-Z-S-I-K, and his images are also found on his website, Nature'sCamera.com. I'll leave those links in the episode show notes. On his site, Nature'sCamera.com, not only will you be treated to tons of imagery of the natural world, but you'll also find quite a bit of educational information on his photography blog. David covers many topics in his tips article on his blog site. From birds in flight to photographing at the zoo, there's even a step-by-step of how to photograph yellow jackets in flight, if you can believe it. These are amazing images. David's been photographing for quite some time, and he'll tell us all about that coming up on the Nature Photography Podcast. Some of you avid listeners to this podcast may recognize David's voice from the episode 19 where I tagged along with him to photograph the Mexican free bats in motion. On that episode, he explains his elaborate setup for capturing wildlife, and in this case, the Mexican free bats, in mid-flight. And he does this kind of photography pretty much in the dark. In an effort to be completely transparent... Dave and I worked together many, many years ago, and we've been very good friends ever since. He's the guy that I bounce photographic ideas off, and whenever I photograph an animal that I don't know what it is or how to identify it, I simply send him a sample image, and he gets right back to me with the correct identification. Dave, thanks for taking the time to come be on the podcast. Thanks, Ter. Yeah, see, now we're casual. See, he calls me Ter. So let's start. I know a lot of these things, but you listeners don't. And and that is, Dave, how did you get started in photography? When I was growing
1: up and stuff as a child and stuff, I spent a lot of time outdoors, which you know a lot of people do and so forth. For me, I did a lot of hunting and fishing. It was kind of the 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 trend in back in the the late 50s early 60s um there was a lot of hunting and fishing and and it's it it, it, you get a different viewpoint now but as i got older when i graduated from high school i got a camera and once i got the camera to be able to record wildlife instead of going out and hunting or fishing um it changed the whole way that i um started to perceive nature and then it just blossomed into the photography end of it and i really don't really do any hunting or fishing anymore it's it's all basically recording and i can i can shoot all the wildlife i want but they're go on their business and and i do my business and i I really enjoy it and i share it with others
0: so nobody gets hurt after you're done photographing them so question though you did have to use some of those hunting skills you use that every day don't you
1: absolutely um i spent a lot of time outdoors which um we can get into later if you want to The time spent when I was younger enables me now to be able to sit for really long periods of time and enjoy what's going to happen because I know enough about the animals that I'm after that um, I know when I set up somewhere, eventually the event will happen. The animal will show up and I'm pretty successful in a lot of the things that I do. And it's just a matter of developing that kind of... Um, attention to detail in nature as you would if you were a a painter learning the paints and how the colors mix and so forth it's the same it's the same spectrum if you're doing woodworking you learn the different kinds of woods and the tools and how they work and what what glues best to another thing well when you're out in the wild all of the creatures and stuff they all have patterns and um different times the year that they're going to be available and And the more time that you spend out there, you really get to appreciate it. And it just, you know, it makes it relaxing for me as well.
0: Yeah. So that's uh, not only just a form of, of relaxation, but it's also, you're coming back with results from what you've learned about the animals, what you've learned about the patterns and what you've learned about the seasons. Well,
1: yeah. Oftentimes I, uh,
0: people will remark, well, how did you get
1: the pictures? And a lot of the The subjects that I photograph are a large percentage of them are very local animals and uh, flora and fauna. Both people go, well, I've never seen one of those around here. I've never, and I just (laughs) I, I tell them, well, when you're out walking along the river, if you sit down, you'll start seeing these things. You slow down when you happen to stop by a tree, look up and down the bark you know that kind of thing and um i've had several people uh, say that well i hadn't been down along the river um in years and they went down this last weekend and all of a sudden you know bingo they're seeing more of nature which which is which i find rewarding and one of the reasons why i share
0: my photographs yeah that's awesome that's awesome so let's go back a little bit when you were uh getting into college you were obviously a very avid photographer nature photographer at the time and you were trying to figure out a way to make a major that fit your criteria. How'd you go about that? When I first started
1: uh, into college I started out as a biological science major which is you know not surprising considering the background that I had um, As I started into the coursework, I noticed that a lot of it was uh, focused on chemistry and physics and so forth which It's all usable when you're doing lab work and more analytical type um, work. But I was interested more in the natural history end of biology. So uh, what I did is I went to the university and, and I said, well, the biological science major isn't really what I want. What I need is all of the courses that are the upper division courses in the biology major which all incorporated mammology, ichthyology, um, herpetology, entomology, all of the ologies that study specific habitats, specific species and uh, groups of uh, wildlife. Because I figured that way I could incorporate it in my documentary uh, format and be able to present it to people more so than if I was a biological science major yes I can choose a couple of those classes but all of the other classes that I needed for the major the the upper division math courses and chemistry and so forth would have taken up all my opportunities to have all the other field classes so I designed the major major specifically with the university and then it gets sent to the state and they approve it comes back and then you uh pick the courses you have to I had to get Um, Two professors, uh, one from two different departments. One was the art department, which um, I was able to locate somebody there to represent me. And then um, one of my biology uh, professors um, uh, also signed on to be an advisor for the biology end of it. And then we went through the coursework offered by the university and I, I got to pick the classes that I wanted and incorporate into this major that I thought would really help me and support me in what my endeavors were at the time.
0: Now, was that a one-off or has anybody else ever taken that same measure Major, as far as you know?
1: As far as I know, nobody else has a biological science or biological photography major
0: yeah, as,
1: that's great. as their major. So
0: that, that doesn't surprise me that you're the, the one of. So back when we met back in the eighties, you went to Australia and I remember you planning for it and the equipment you were going to bring. And I think you were going to be riding a bicycle. So you had to kind of lean out on your equipment. What were your photographic goals there? And had you ever been to Australia before then?
1: Yeah. Um, the very first trip was in 1980 and um up, up until then, my main transportation was um, hitchhiking. And back in those days, hitchhiking was quite common. So I decided <laughs> that I was going to do this trip down in Australia and the South Pacific Islands. I went to New Zealand and Fiji and Samoa and Tonga and so forth. But I spent nine months. And the the goal was to to get out. And I, at first, when I first started, I wanted to be, yeah, I, I looked, I go, I want to be a, photographer for National Geographic or some of these other magazines, I think. So what I need to do is I need to build up um, kind of a character springboard that would enable me to be, you know, famous as a photographer. And then um, what I did is I planned this trip. And I spent nine months just hitchhiking around the entire continent of Australia, photographing wildlife all the way from Tasmania up to Darwin in Northern Territory, um, over from over in Perth all the way over to Sydney. I just covered the entire continent and um, collected all. And back in those days, it was film, so um, I collected all of my inventory and so forth. And then when I came back, I started selling some of uh, the pictures at uh, calendar companies and stuff like that and to try to get myself, you know, noted and so forth. But it wasn't as easy back then because we didn't have an internet so that I could post something up and the whole world get to see it instantly. It was the mail it out, wait for months to get a return, um, you know, of your pictures and and a
0: decision from somebody. And it was a much slower process. Yeah. And also in today's world, you know, you can obviously instantly publish and we'll talk about that a little later, but... In the magazine world today, it's better to submit a set of photographs that match to an article that maybe you've written or had somebody write for you. So you're submitting a complete package to a publisher so they have that. Now, did you do any of that where you wrote articles as well as submitted photographs? No, I didn't. As a matter of fact,
1: I've I've got several... um of the compositions of what I was going to be sending out, like a lot of people and procrastinated. I still have them today (laughs) from from the 80s and 90s. I just never, I spent so much time in the outdoors that I look at all the, the kind of, it's kind of the business end of it. And I have just a different approach than when I first started and wanted to make it my like career um i did some commercial work and f- weddings and that kind of stuff for bringing in money and stuff but i really my passion is the the natural history end of it yeah and um so the business end of it is is not what i'm big at
0: well we'll get into that yeah. detail a little yeah. in a little bit because uh that's something i know and that's obviously how we met in the commercial field so not long ago you went to belize in central america and By that time, you had all digital equipment. So what was it in Belize that made you want to go photograph there? It was with uh, the university
1: in uh, in, uh, California. And they were doing studies on... There was somebody that was there that was collecting for um, uh, entomology. He was into longhorn beetles. And they were collecting various species. And they identified like 100 new species while we were there. Mm -hmm. But my... um, whole thing was to to gather images of the rainforest fauna. And also the flora, but mainly the fauna.
0: So what do you think of that in terms of compared to the things that you see here every day versus what you saw down there every day? I mean, obviously it's a different... One, it's extremely hot and humid.
1: (laughs) When you ever, (laughs) I I always kind of, I enjoy watching some of the nature films and then I, I think about it, well, you know... Uh, Some that's that takes place, let's say, in Africa or even in Australia. And I think of the times when I was out in Australia, and my whole back was just covered with flies and things. The things that you don't see in a nature film—the heat, the humidity—that you can't get out of, you can't get away from—is. Um, it's it's funny because it it's a whole different thing it's almost like um you wish you had at a movie theater you wish you also had a scratch and sniff so you could smell when you're watching a documentary on some third world country how that environment smells because mm-hmm. it's to-
0: totally different but um I, so if you're from australia and you're ready to write your email to me uh, just remember that's david Bozick talking about the smell of australia <laughs> not me
1: <laughs> there you go
0: but it's it's part of it, enjoying the natural world
1: um but when i went down there you know i wanted i was continuing just to document wildlife which is what i really like doing and also bring it back and share it with other people mm-hmm. and and that's kind of the key thing and that's what my, my pretty much my website focuses on is just sharing natural history stuff with others
0: yeah so on your website there's there's a whole bunch of photography tips so it's not just a place to view and buy photographs there's also quite a bit of learning that can be done at your website too. Yeah. I have over uh, 50 different um, uh, blog
1: articles that cover a a wide range of subjects. Um, Every once in a while, somebody will write to me and say, well, you know, how do you do this? Or how do you find this particular uh, frog, you know, and, and, and photograph it. And for me, that is really good because it, it's taken me, you know, now I'm, I'm 68 this, this year and it's, every day that i go out i find some new way of exploring some kind of wildlife that i knew was available that i've photographed before but i see it in a new way in a new light so there's you know tons of opportunity for everybody and um it it, that the website you know i try to put articles whenever I can up there and whenever, you know, people request things. Uh, sometimes I'll just request stuff and I'll just give them uh, some information on equipment and mm-hmm. and how they go about capturing these, this type of wildlife.
0: So, so, so in speaking of equipment, uh, what kind of equipment do you use now? And in the future, do you have a bucket list of something that you would like to use maybe in the future? Well,
1: I, I still use uh, the DSLRs. Um, I I haven't. One totally of my few friends who it. still uses Nikon. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh yes, yes. I'm still a Nikon guy. Um, the the mirrorless now that they have is is really nice, but I, I don't see any. I don't really see a lot of advantages yet for me, um, for the the type of work that I do. But um, the bucket list. I've been in it long enough to where I've acquired pretty much everything that i need um so one thing that i would suggest is that if somebody is trying to let's say improve their photography it's not the equipment necessarily um they should focus just on a lot on learning about the animals or even if it's botanical stuff you're interested in when flowers bloom and stuff, the information that is much more valuable in obtaining the pictures than just the equipment itself. I've got lenses, everything from, uh, 20, let's see, 16, all the way 14, 14 to 600. So, um, yeah, I've got a lot of different lenses. I use probably four of them the most, Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of them are specialty kind of thing. Two hundred micro, I don't use it a lot, but when it's when I feel it's the tool to use, I can't get close enough to a venomous snake or something, um, then I pull out that that extra tool. But most of my imagery, I can get everything from landscapes to you know birds in flight, um, small warblers and things with uh, like four lenses that I have.
0: Right. So now when you go out and i've been out with dave many many times and uh he brings a lot of stuff with him you know it's uh a, it's a, a labor of love to some some sense you know his tripod is huge uh but it's also very stable and he well let me let me ask you why did you get such a big tripod and tell the folks of your thoughts on tripod purchase <laughs>
1: It's funny. Um, One of the key things is that when, as a matter of fact, when I shot with you um, in the early 80s um, in the studio, the difference in quality that you get with a tripod as opposed to handheld, and I have nothing against people getting handheld pictures, but you can usually see the difference with somebody shooting the same subject matter Now there's limitations to tripods. There's limitations to, to using handheld handheld. Yeah. You can grab shots. I I miss pictures. Absolutely. The pictures that I get, the quality that I, that I get, and that's what I'm after. I want something that's really of quality that I'm pleased with. Um, so the, the tripod is the way to go. And I started out with, um, kind of some lighter weight ones but the heavy ones that really make a difference oh, and nowadays with a carbon fiber you can get a big stout tripod but it's not heavy and nothing like it used to be and um when and there that's was aluminum and, and I've got a couple other people that I go out with occasionally they never bring a tripod and I, and I, I say that's fine but I always bring mine yeah <laughs> I did you know because sometimes you'll get a low light situation gosh I wish I could use a quarter of a second here but hand holding it know you're just not going to do it not going to happen no
0: no well we're going to take a quick break uh, and that's going to lead into uh, some other topics we'll talk to dave about so we'll be right back when dave is talking about hand holding your camera and lens versus putting the whole rig on a tripod he's suffering the hassle of carrying a tripod but gaining the confidence that the images will be razor sharp for me i also go to great lengths to get the sharpest images i can and you can too. Check out my ebook, Razor Sharp Nature Photography, only sold on my website, imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T dot The ebook is instantly downloadable for your computer, iPad, or your phone, so you can take it with you on your next photo adventure. It covers selecting a good tripod, step-by-step on focus stacking, and a complete understanding of shutter speed and aperture, plus much more. To check it out, go over to imagelight.com, go to the digital product page, and download your copy of Razor Sharp Nature Photography. Do it today. Now let's get back to our conversation with David Bozik, nature photographer. All right, we're back with the Nature Photography Podcast. We're talking with Dave Bozik, And, of course, you can see his images on his Facebook site, Bozik Imagery, or on his website, naturescamera.com. So one of the attributes that um, uh, I really admire about you is that you get out to photograph just about every day. I mean, more than anybody I know, you're out there shooting every day, whether it's a simple walk with your dog. What motivates you to get out there and shoot every single day?
1: That's kind of a funny thing. My wife says that my dog is my trainer, my physical trainer. So um, I take the dog for a walk every day. It's pretty much every day. And we go from two to five hours. So I spend an incredible amount of time in, in the field. And the motivation is that it's so rewarding, the things that I get to see. Some, every once in a while, I won't take a camera. And I still spend two to five hours out there.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a a good window of time that you can go out not only if you're not shooting, you're looking and I bet you knowing you you're probably watching a species and saying, "Oh, look what it does here. Look what it does there. I'm going to come back tomorrow when the light's a little bit better." And that as a matter of fact
1: that happened just the other day. Um I happened to go out with the dog because it was a, there was a some rain and stuff like that so i and i go out whether it's raining or not um because the animals you know they don't care they still have to eat they still have to you know do their business as far as you know surviving and when we were out there there was a a manzanita bush that was in full bloom and there was just an array of hummingbirds all over the 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 outside Mm -hmm. and just go I'm going to come back here. And the next day I spent four hours at the, at that one plant waiting for him to come in and, and got some, you
0: know, wonderful images. So I equate this to fishermen that say, Oh, we're going to go bass fishing. And so when you go bass fishing, you get this certain amount of gear that you bring to, to do that. So if the bass aren't biting, then you need to pivot and start fishing for say trout. As you go out, you're going out there specifically to shoot hummingbirds. And what happens if, all of a sudden, you're, you see a, a hawk making a nest nearby that's low enough to get a good shot. Do you uh, just? I definitely pivot? shift gears. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, But oftentimes, uh, like I said, I, I, if I'm going on, let's say I'm going camping somewhere to where I'm going to be out for several days, I bring a lot of equipment, which is what you were mentioning earlier. But on a daily basis, I usually bring one camera body, maybe one other lens, like a short lens, that, and it's usually a macro lens. So, um, I can kind of shift gears from the macro to the thing, but to do scenery, I'm kind of left out. I have to come back the next day. Um, so that's kind of the way that, that works. I, I, I'll shift, but only with what the equipment allows me to do. Right. Um, the other day, uh, the other thing that we were mentioned about for opportunities, when, when I'm walking along and I happen to see something, I may not necessarily, let's say, I'll give you an example. Um there was uh, some sparrows and some bluebirds and a, a couple other species of birds, warblers, that were feeding on the ground in an area where the sunlight was hitting. This area had been trimmed and stuffed by the park service, and there was lots of wood chips all over the ground. So what had happened is that with the weather the previous uh, couple of days, it had been wet and damp, and the sun on that wet, damp soil was bring, bringing the invertebrates That are in the the ground, bringing them more to the surface, and then um, the birds were feeding on them. So what I did is I went home and came back the next day to that very same spot. The birds were there, and then what I did is I sat down, and they all flew away. Most people go, oh, okay, well, the birds are gone. I'm going to go chase something else. I don't chase wildlife. I sat there, and the dog sat beside me for three hours. The birds slowly worked their way back. I wasn't moving or anything, and I was only maybe 30 feet away. And I just waited and waited, and they all came back because they knew where the food was. That was a source of something for them that they needed, and they routinely were coming there each day, I guess, and um, provided me the images. And I got some just
0: wonderful shots of the, the, especially the yellow warbler and stuff. So that tip alone, just to be patient and to wait as opposed to, chasing wildlife and you and I have both seen this yeah. and if you go particularly go to a national let's say you go to Yellowstone Yellowstone's the the chasing wildlife mecca capital of yeah. the world yeah you know because somebody says oh I heard there was a moose over in this area and everybody drives over to see if they can get the moose and the moose is walking along trying to live its life and everybody's trying to jockey to position to get this shot i found that it's much easier to say Well, it looks like the moose is going north. I think what I'll do is go find a good position where there's good light and stay there and see what happens. Now, I don't hit every time. Not all the time does that moose come to my direction, but sometimes it does, and those are great shots, and you're not elbow to elbow with somebody else, and you're not just chasing and getting the hindquarters of an animal. You're getting what you're looking for.
1: This is where that plays into... um the whole idea and concept of watching the wildlife because you can watch and if a you can tell when birds or any mammal is is gone for the day um if if you come in and just kind of disturb them to where they move out of the way if you sit down the other people if you're in a park for example the other people that are moving around the park once you become an inanimate object you're just sitting there the wildlife kind of goes okay that's just like the deer the horses that are out in the field the cattle that are there and stuff i can go out i could feed in around their legs and stuff but if they started moving running around and stuff like that then they realize and animals realize when you're stalking them they can see that that's how they survive (laughs) you know they they recognize that look if you're just sitting there patiently because you saw they were working that spot they will come back to that spot again
0: yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dave and I well. were in uh, in Yosemite Valley one one afternoon, and we saw a coyote on the. Gosh, I guess it was the eastern side of the valley, and that was in the morning, and we spent the better part of the day photographing this guy making his way across. And so we just leapt frog ahead and waited. He'd come by, then we'd go a little farther, come by, and at the end of the day, we were very lucky because the you know, five o'clock or whenever the light was great, he was coming right towards us and we both got some great shots. So that's something of just planning a little bit ahead, knowing what this animal's going to do and or having a good idea what he's going to do and positioning yourself.
1: Yeah. And the hours that I spend along the river and, and, and over in the, at the lake that's nearby, um, you get to know it just like you do everything in your house. You know where you put your pencil down. Unless you're like me, you you forget where I put my (laughs) wallet or whatever. But, um, you know, you know where the the refrigerator, you know, you know where that is. That's where you get your food. Well, it's the same thing with the animals. They know when something's blooming or something has fruit on it and it's starting to ripen. That's the place to go. And, you know, and it works out that way. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. So I know that you've published work in magazines. You've published work on the web. Uh, you've sold postcards. You've sold in in galleries. Your uh, completed prints for wall hanging, but that's not what drives you. So there are different types of photographers out there, and you're to the point where something else drives you to go out and create images and simply share them on your Facebook page. What is what is that thought process for just sharing your images versus trying to figure out how you're going to make a buck off it?
1: The last few years, I've, I've got quite a bit of inventory that I was, I was trying to, I was thinking about how do I get more people to see my work instead of just at a gallery or, you know, just selling the the greeting cards. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this Facebook thing would be uh, an avenue. So, you know, something that I could, you know, tap into. And there's this one site, can I give a, a, a plug? <laughs> I love Fair Oaks and it's, it's the area where I live in. That's the group on Facebook called I Love Fair Oaks. They've got people that are on the site that are just local people that enjoy seeing things along the parkway. And as I started posting images, I was getting more and more um, comments from people and um, special messages on the side and stuff saying, well, you know, i've lived here in fair oaks my whole life i'm now in my late 70s i'm now bedridden i can't get out and it just it makes it brings back their childhood back to them to be able to see the wildflowers blooming down along the river that they can't they don't have access anymore wow you know and then and then there's other people that will write and say wow i hadn't realized these creatures are here and um so if if i can I know evoke some kind of emotion in in people to where they want to go out and just appreciate and view the wildlife and and stuff around. Um, A lot has changed since you and I first started where there, you know, fields of um, birds and and so forth that are around. uh, Just examples like uh, the burrowing owls used to be in the town that I lived in. Burrowing owls were everywhere. They're no longer in existence. Um, And I'll, as they as humans develop more areas there's going to be less populations of wildlife and you know i want people to be able to appreciate as much as they can while it's still available here
0: right. for everybody so and you know there's a simplicity to posting your images where somebody who's maybe getting into photography and thinking that that's something they want to do or maybe they've dabbled in it and they think wow now there's there's some subjects that are really local that i can go capture and you get a lot of joy out of that. You know, and I, I, I'm a big fan of all types of nature photography. When photographing wildlife, like you do mostly, that wildlife is something that's such a challenge. And a lot of times people don't realize what a challenge it is to get that bird feeding on the river. You know, it's... it's Yes, yeah,
1: there's always the the birds that are out in the open or some deer that are happen to be in a park. But... The other thing about sitting in a location for a long time, um, the other day I was out and I was walking around and I just noticed I said, yeah, the dog was sitting here. So I sat down and then I, I, I turned it. I was looking at the bark of the tree and just all the pretty colors of lichen. It reminded me when I was in the Great Barrier Reef photographing and I was doing the snorkeling and diving and, and all of the pretty coral. And I thought, you know, people see the, the undersea films and they go, wow, all that really beautiful. Wish I could see the, the coral and how wonderful colors and stuff. If they stop, there's just as much color and textures and beauty in what's above the water as well.
0: Right in front yeah, of you. Yeah. In, in Northern California.
1: Yeah, phenomenal stuff.
0: That's great. When you're out photographing and... You also take trips that are specific for photography. They're not just down every day to your local, which is the bulk of your photography is, is local to you. But occasionally you'll take a trip to another state. And what are those trips like? Are those pre-planned a lot or is it basically let's throw some gear in the car? M- well, most of them are
1: they're targeted for subjects like um, I, I'm a real uh, fancier of the desert. And, um, my brother lives out in Nevada, out in the desert. So I'll go out and visit him, but from his house, I'll just launch out and I go farther into the more, um, more open areas of the desert. And usually most of my trips, when they're more distant, I'll have an idea of the location. And then if I don't, if I haven't been there before, I definitely research to find out if the species that I'm interested in seeing one are they there at that time of the year you know are, are the reptiles are going to be there all year round but are you going to see them um the um if there's birds are they migrating through are they you know that kind of thing
0: um you and, also and, consider how those birds look too. what time of year do they exactly. do they look their best
1: oh yeah the breeding breeding usually plumage, plumage is stuff during breeding season of any creature is usually the best um so and then Unless you're looking for mammals in the winter, which is the, the winter coats are the, are the best for them. Mm-hmm. So which the hunting hunting kind of um, made that pretty uh, obvious in, you know, for me, <laughs> you know, it's something that I, that I grew up with when with the hunting and stuff like that. That's one of the best,
0: the prime coats, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. In the desert, what would be something if somebody was going to take a trip to the desert to photograph, what would be something that they would want to target? that they would say, okay, this is something worth making a trip for the desert. For For most of the
1: deserts, at least out here in the the Western United States, uh, the best time is spring because uh, most of the, the plants, if you're going to get a, a bigger, broader spectrum of wildlife uh, because I'm really into broad spectrum. I do invertebrates. I do, um, you know, the reptiles, also the, the flora of the, the areas. So, what you'd want to do is is hit it in the springtime, and then and then there's just a wide variety of. You'd look at the species of what I do. First of all, what I probably would do if it's an area that I haven't been to is I'd look at the plants. What are the plants there, and then with the knowledge that I already have, uh, a lot of it I can tell what's going to be there as far as birds and reptiles. Um, if it's an open sandy area. If it's a sagebrush area, if it's rocks and boulders and stuff, it's going to dictate the kinds of things that I'm going to see. Mm-hmm. So, and then, and then I start looking at well, what kind of equipment do I need, and you know, how long am I going to need to spend out there to see antelope ground squirrels at this particular location because they're real skittish. Or, uh, they, and then that, then I kind of develop the trip after I figure out what it is that i'm going after and Mm -hmm. how i want to capture it i may want to have something that's on a remote release and i have a triggering system let's say uh insects that are night flying insects moths and stuff out in the desert i've got a whole setup that i have um uh, ultraviolet lights and high-speed equipment so i need to know okay what time of the year do the moths emerge to be feeding on the plants out there and then and then proceed from there and develop the system that I'm going to take, as opposed to taking really big long lenses and all that other stuff right. that I won't use. So it's it, it's kind of targeted first on what I think I'm going to see there, and then expand out as to equipment and things.
0: And then once you get there, there still is the the adapting to that environment and saying, oh, well, this is what they're going to do. And you, speaking of your stop action where you're shooting insects in flight, that's something that uh, it's an elaborate equipment setup. But it also is something you have to kind of do a lot of adjustments there on site, right?
1: Yeah. The, um, uh, the shot that you had mentioned earlier uh, that I had got a whole series of pictures of the uh, yellow jacket nest. One, anybody that's in, <laughs> been around yellow jackets, they're not necessarily friendly with, with you know people and stuff around the, their, um, their dwelling. So it took me a couple of days to set it up. Because I, I would come in and I would move just a little bit. I'd set a thing down, you know, maybe a piece of equipment, a platform to hold, uh, a, you know, a staging um, equipment to hold the laser uh, triggering device and then come in another day and stuff. Because if you introduce a bunch of the stuff, you're liable to get stunk. So, uh, yeah. So there's a, there's a little bit of strategy to all all of the, the different things. So, And it's one of the things that you need to do whenever you go in the outdoors is prepared to spend... A lot of time, if you really want to get good pictures of something, is spend time with that one subject and don't get into the chasing. Oh, I got to find another thing. Got to find another thing. Got to find... because you wind up not getting very good pictures overall. You get a lot sometimes, and um, but. Coming back with just a few really nice pictures because you spent the time with that subject makes the, all the difference in the world.
0: Yeah I, yeah, I can't, I can't agree enough on that. Now, when you're in the desert and you're photographing reptiles, reptiles are on the ground, so I'm assuming then then you're on the ground. Yeah, I, and so what? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's you're you're on your belly. I assume right. Yeah. yeah, everything from sidewinders to whip tail lizards. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. I have uh some square pads. You can you can get them at various um uh, outdoor um like your shops, like Lowe's or Home Depot stuff. They sell these square pads that are for in the shop, mm-hmm. and they're a kind of a hard sell foam. And they clip together. They're almost like puzzle pieces, like little jigsaw pieces. And it's like five bucks, ten bucks, or something for five or ten of these, and they're two foot by two foot squares. And what I do is I have the, uh, the back part of my car is lined with them so that they're always there. So when the dog's in there, it's got, you know, these pads that are waterproof and everything mm-hmm. and he goes out, jumps in the river or whatever in the mud and stuff comes in. But I can also grab those a couple of those and I can lay down where the cactus spines are and all that stuff. Cause I put the pads down and they're, um, and I'm ready to shoot and stuff. So yeah, I'm on my stomach a lot when in the desert areas,
0: cause there is very few trees out in the desert here. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I hear. Yeah. 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 Talk is like that. You talk a little bit about equipment equipment's kind of a big thing but more so than equipment if you found somebody who was just starting off in nature photography and they what would be some advice that you give them not only equipment but also advice on the process the your most important tool is knowing what what it is you're photographing
1: knowing as much about it okay then once you you find it as far as the tools and equipment is you can get kind of hung up into buying lots of different gear, but find one or two things. If you like a certain telephoto lens, shoot with that a lot. It's just like, I don't know, I guess a baseball player doesn't use lots of different bats. They have this like, this is my best or a golfer. <laughs> you should know golf, right? <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, you have these, a couple of tools that you really, really like to, and you use them a lot. Um, and, I've found, even with my, uh, I do illustrating, and with the pen and the techniques that I have with the digital drawing, that there's, you know, there's hundreds of different kinds of filter things, brushes, and things that you can get, but I only use maybe six or seven. Yeah. It, 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 what, it, what really works, but the only way that I was able to perfect those specific five or six tools is I use them the most. Yeah you know, and occasionally when you want to expand, once you feel real comfortable that you know this tool and you want to get a a new lens that will do something that you, maybe some other kind of a photography that you don't normally do. Maybe it's a night photography, you know, celestial stuff. You want to do a real wide angle and then you can practice with that. But get good at whatever equipment that you start with, get really good with it so you can make a good choice as to what you want to go next.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, uh, sometimes uh, people forget that, if you take one one camera, one lens, and you get so good at it that the technology fades away, so you're not thinking about the technology of oh, I need to. This is the f-stop. This is right. what I. That fades away, and now you're looking at the subject, and the subject now becomes your most yes, important and part. Yes,
1: wait, waiting for the moment, waiting for that. Oh, oh there it is. You know, or, or it's gonna it's gonna move this way because. I, I just know it's done it three times now and I'm ready for it. Oh, yeah. Kind of a thing. So, um, yeah. And it, it, it's, it boils down to technique with your equipment can improve your picture better than just getting the equipment itself.
0: Right. So, yeah. So to wrap this up, um, you're going to continue shooting as you normally do continue posting to your, your website and your Facebook. Uh, what are other, some other goals that you have coming up for the next year? What I'd like to do is um, I want to
1: do a few more um, trips out to the desert, more than I have been doing the last couple of years, um, because there's a few different species of... Um, there's Gila monsters and things that I want to work with down in um, Arizona New Mexico. So, uh, you know, I'd like to head down that way and spend some time down there doing that. Um, as far as um, it's in the future and expanding... What I'm doing right now is just trying to enjoy as much of what I see and be able to share it with people. And my goals are just that lots of people get to see this stuff that they can't normally see. Awesome. And, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of stacking, photo stacking recently. And that's where the lichen and stuff that I was mentioning the, uh, that I shot the other day um, was really good. The, the flowers are just starting to to bloom and stuff the the willows were um sending out their their little blooms their um the little putsy willow things with the yellow blossom and just the detail it just it's remarkable that that's what you could see with stacking So, So, so i've spent some time with
0: that when you've been stacking you have some techniques out in the field so um a lot of the stacking that i've done it's been almost under studio conditions where things are everything is locked down you're out in the field doing this stacking what's the process you go with that
1: I use one piece of equipment, a, f- a fair amount. Uh, I used to just take and manually readjust. Those of you that don't know what stacking is, it's you take a number of images. Let's say you want to photograph a flower, and when you shoot it at a, a specific f-stop, you get only a certain amount of the flower that's going to be really sharp, and as you increase the f-stop, it'll get more or less in front or in back of, of whatever you're focused on. But the whole flower... Is not necessarily all in focus when you stack you take a series of images starting at the very front of this flower let's say and you take 40 or 50 images moving the focus just back a little bit further a little bit further a little bit further. this could be just you know millimeters or uh, you know half a millimeter well i've got a piece of equipment now that does that automatically for me um and Um, it makes it a little bit easier, but sometimes the other day I didn't have it with me. So I still stack manually. And, um, uh, the tripod's essential. Yeah. Uh, it, it is when you're doing studio work and you're doing really super close up, it's, it is out in the field because everything's moving. Um, I've got a, a little clamp that I, that I use that when the camera's on the tripod, sometimes it'll be, let's say it's a, a flower or the other, the other day it was the willow, the blossoms and they were up off the ground. It's like five, six feet off the ground. And they're at the very tips. The, and those, the slightest breeze. I was going to say, yeah, they stand t- the
0: totally still, right?
1: S- the slightest, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The slightest <laughs> little breeze and what you'd think, oh yeah, it's a really calm day. There's like absolutely no wind. And you look at it in your viewfinder and you're mm-hmm. looking, you're seeing this thing's moving probably a third of the way across the the viewfinder so i've got a thing called a plamp Mm -hmm. it's made by wimberly and uh it clamps to the front of my tripod and then it clamps to the you know onto the The stem stem itself Mm -hmm. and then uh, that way i can hold it out there in front and um and that way i can do my stack and and get it you know accomplished
0: uh, you know with reasonable ease sometimes i have to do two or three stacks to get one that's that's always yeah. a good idea to do yeah. an extra stack. But yep. also with that flamp is it when you undo that clamp system, the plant can go on living doing what it normally does. Sure. You're, not, you're not clipping a piece of plant material and then bringing it back and shooting it under perfect conditions. You know, you're doing it live, so everything stays live, which is kind of a nice concept. Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: I just got recently. There's, they sell a little extension for it, so it reaches out even even farther. But yes, it having it held steady in the field is is difficult for any of the the small. The closer you get, it's like using a telephoto lens. The longer the lens is, it's really hard to hold steady on a subject. If you if you've ever looked through a telescope and touched it, and you're looking at like the moon or something, it really moves a lot because it's really magnified. Same effect is happening when you're doing close-up. You're magnifying and you're getting really close-up. So when you move a
0: little little tiny bit, it's a lot in the frame. So
1: every little bit helps.
0: So keeping that in mind, when you're using a telephoto lens and you've, you're photographing moving wildlife, like a bird launching from a tree or something like that, you know the thought process is you've got a 400-millimeter lens and you've got... Uh, an animal that's moving. So you say, Oh, well, I'll shoot it a thousandth of a second. That's going to be more than double my, my focal length. Will that be enough to stop the, uh, a bird in that kind of scenario? Usually not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, most birds in flight and, and it
1: depends on the, on the, the bird in the situation. Um, hummingbirds I've shot as slow as like a 300th of a second with the 600 lens hmm. be and. What's remarkable is they come out extremely sharp. The wings wings blur into like almost clear, mm-hmm. um, but it's amazing the structures on the bird, how it's able to stabilize itself to where it doesn't move at all. It's like a little that, that gimbal flying take, there. Yeah, that you could that you could. Yeah, it's really bizarre. But um, a larger bird, let's say it's a heron. Uh, something that size, maybe it's a turkey vulture or something like that. You a thousandth of a second, maybe you'll still get a little bit of blur and stuff. But I, you know, two thousand and above is
0: for most. And the the really small birds, sparrows and stuff, you know, three thousand. Yeah, of a second. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You got yeah. That's one of the things I think people forget is that the you know you have this beautiful long lens, and no matter what the f stop is, you need to have a shutter speed that's going to stop the wing movements, if you're looking for that shot. I mean, you know, obviously there's the motion shot where you're going to catch a little bit of trailing motion of the bird. But you also have to kind of, you really have to consider if I really want to stop this bird cold, how do I do it? And I find myself many times shooting at a four thousandth of a second to make sure that that's when you calculate in the length of the lens because the length of the lens is going to actually be a big consideration as to whether you were going to be able to get that yeah. image sharp. Yeah. And even if you have to increase
1: the ISO, a lot of the programs that they have now for the denoise that, mm-hmm. that you get with the higher ISO helps out a lot. Um, but uh, on the flip side, if a bird is um, let's say feeding and, and moving along on the ground and stuff like that, I'll use as slow as I can get away with as shutter speed because I really don't like using high ISO. Um, so um, yes you need a fast shutter speed if you want to stop action with birds yeah but otherwise if, if it's just something that's sitting there like preening itself and and thing oftentimes you can get a, get away with a 500th of a second mm-hmm. and but that way you can really lower that ISO and then you know you have some really good saturation and and, and oh, yeah. less
0: noise and stuff in the in the details sure. contains and then you can bring a sharper sound a lot easier with something yes, like that absolutely so as we wrap this up, I want to just, uh, first of all, thank you for coming down to uh, talk with me. And Dave and I talk all the time, so now I've just made him talk on, on tape, so now I can uh, I can savor it for years to come. It's uh, fantastic having you here, and I appreciate you with all the knowledge you've given me over the years for uh, not only in photography, but mostly about the Specific animal that I want to photograph, I I get such great insight from you because you (laughs) you know so much about this stuff. And I just you know anybody out there listening that wants to improve their photography, their nature photography, go have a look at his work, and then also consider some of the things we talked about today of just learning about the species you're going to go photograph. The more you know, the more you're going to be in the right position at the right time at the end. So thanks again. Yeah. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nature Photography Podcast. If you'd like more nature photography content or just can't get enough of hearing my voice, head on over to YouTube and check out my videos over there. You can find me on YouTube by searching for photography at TV 510. Until next time, this is Terry Vanderheiden with the Nature Photography Podcast.